We're in James chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, the perils of riches. The per Did you know that riches can be a problem? Yes, we're going to learn about that today. If you would, stand for reading of God's Word. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You, you have condemned, you have murdered the just, he does not resist you. This is the word of God, please be seated. Now, as you know, the theme, the theme of James is genuine faith produces genuine works. And our key verse was 226, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. James is writing to a persecuted Jewish Christians, just to remind you, we haven't been here in a couple weeks. So they're, they're in the diaspora. Any Jew living outside the land is considered to be in the dispersion, the diaspora. So all the Jewish people in New York City, all the people in Miami, all the people in Europe, they are considered to be in the diaspora. One day all the Jews will be in the land. That'll happen in the millennial reign of Christ. And these Jews are being persecuted. James is talking to a persecuted group of people because they believe in Jesus. And they've lost everything. Many of them have lost their family because they believe in Christ, their friends, their work. Some of them are even in prison, and they're suffering. Now, the last time James, we, we were in James, he was instructing these Christians about judging and boasting, judging and boasting. So I don't know if you remember, we talked about the perils of the judging tongue, the perils of the judging tongue. And, and the judging tongue was to speak evil of, to talk down another believer, with, with, with the intent of elevating yourself. So you're speaking down, degrading someone with the intent of elevating yourself. Uh, remember, you can win the battle in an argument, but you can lose the war. You can lose a friend. You can lose a relationship. You can lose the war. Win the battle. I know I'm right. I'm going to stand upon my rights. I know I'm right. And lose the war, okay? Uh, to speak evil, the judging tongue fosters division, and discouragement. And guess who really enjoys division and discouragement in the body of Christ? Satan does. That's right. The demonic realm does. And I don't know if you remember this, but six things God hates, seventh are an abomination unto him. And that seventh one is in Proverbs 6.19, someone who stirs up dissension among the brethren. That is something that God hates. The cure we learned when we did this study was to allow the law of love to govern your actions. In James 2.8, we are to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, a new command I give you in John 13, 34, and 35, a new command I give you that you love one another. And this way, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the law of love is the, is the main thing. Now, I want you to think about this. A must for healthy relationships. A must for healthy relationships that you, you must address issues and not avoid issues because they're uncomfortable. Things can come to a head and fester and then burst, okay? You don't want that. You don't want that. Uh, the important thing is to address issues, work through issues, work through differences, but attempt to see through the other person's eyes. 
through the other person's lens. And then be loving and kind. Be willing to flex. Be willing to bend just a little bit. Be willing to work through your issues. But never, ever, ever do this. You never compromise truth for peace. You don't go along to get along. And whenever we're addressing things and we're, we're de dealing with issues, it must be with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. We see that in Ephesians 4.15. So we talked about the perils of the judging tongue. And we've also talk, talked about, the last time we were here in James, the perils of the boasting tongue. Now I want to ask you, do you think boasting is a problem in our culture? I mean, have you ever seen sports so out of control where everybody's just, I am so great? Yeah. The boasting tongue, big problem. The, the exaltation of I, I, me, myself, and I. It reeks of pride. And remember, all boasting is from the evil one. We got that in verse 16, chapter 4. But now you boast in your arrogance or in your pride. All such boasting is evil. It is evil in the eyes of God. What is the prideful boasting person forgetting? Well, verse 14 last time, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life but a vapor that, here, that appears for a little blip of time and is gone? You don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes, 24 hours or whatever. And boasting about your future is useless. And that's why the scripture implores us in Amos 4.12, prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. We all have an appointment with this. And remember, I, I stressed, this is an appointment that you'll be on time for. There will be no late. There will be no, I, I got up late. The car was something. You know, there will be no excuses. You'll be there, and you'll be standing before God. There will be no one prideful standing before God, including Satan, the demonic realm, the rulers, not you or I. Because Philippians 2.10 says, Every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every single tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That, that is something that's going to happen to us. We literally are individually going to stand before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is going to give us rewards or loss of rewards. And there will be not a moment of pride because we will see him as he is in the totality of his, of his, of his glory. Beware of judging and beware of boasting. Now, this week we're going to talk about the perils of riches, the perils of riches. And there are perils to riches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, please, for just a few moments, help us to be attentive to what you have to say to us today. Speak to our hearts. Help us to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're talking about money. We're talking about success and wealth and that sort of thing. Well, there's some people that have had some insight into wealth. Joe Lewis. Anybody know Joe Lewis? He was a boxer. He was a great boxer, a phenomenal boxer in the 30s and the 40s. He said this about money. I don't necessarily like it, but it quiets my nerves. Mm, okay. Another guy said this. People are waiting for their ship to come in, but they've never sent one out. You know, so often people wish and hope and wish and hope that something happens. Hey, you have to prepare. The following sign was being carried by an employee who was on strike. Time heals all wounds, but time and a half heals faster. <laughs> I thought that was good. A young man wanted to know how to, how to have wisdom in dealing with, with life and success. And a young man asked the older, what's the secret of your success? 
Good decisions, he replied. How do you learn to make good decisions? You get that by experience. How do you get experience? By making bad decisions. <laughs> yeah, okay. The trouble with success is that the formula is the same as the one for a nervous breakdown. And finally, Paul Tan says this, and this is, I think, really profound. There are many things that money cannot buy. Money can buy a bed, but not sleep. Books, but not brains. Food, but not an appetite. Finery, but not beauty. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Pleasures, but not peace. Luxuries, but not culture. Amusements, but not joy. A crucifix, but not a savior. A church building, but not heaven. Oh, the perils of riches. The perils of riches. We have different views of what riches are. Thinking about the perils of riches, remember, everything that we have is so fleeting. For people to put all their eggs in this basket that is fleeting so quickly, it is just not wise. You can be on top of the world one moment and in an instant be in the valley of despair. Do not put your trust in riches. One man wrote this, and this is quite profound. In 1923, the world's most successful financiers met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Those present included the president of the largest independent steel company, the greatest wheat speculator, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet, the greatest bear on Wall Street, the president of the Bank of International Settlement, and the head of the world's greatest monopoly. These are seven people, and they all met. And they had more wealth between them than the entire United States Treasury. And their success story was given to the youth at that time, urging them to be just like these guys. Two decades later, they follow up study on their lives of these seven. The steel magnate lived in debt his last five years and died penniless. The wheat speculator died insolvent overseas. The president of the New York Stock Exchange had been released from New York Sing Sing Prison. The cabinet member received a pardon from prison to die at home. The Wall Street Bear, the president of the Bank of the International Settlement, and the head of the monopoly all committed suicide. All seven success stories ended tragically. Names that were once synonymous with wealth and power and prestige and influence were in the end associated with humiliation and crime and death. It may take intelligence to make a lot of money, but it takes true wisdom to handle it. True wisdom to handle it. Do not put your trust in riches, folks. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Chuck Missler says this, being rich is not a sin, but it has its unique hazards. One of the biggest, ironically, is selfishness. Selfishness. Now, what is rich? What is rich? Most people say, well, this doesn't even apply to me. I'm not rich. Well, you'll be surprised. The global rich list was built to challenge the perceptions promoted by Forbes and Times magazines that list Western readers are and states that Western readers are comparatively poor. You might be surprised to find out how high you rank and how wrong that was. A guy named Polk London a family, says this about a family living just above the poverty line in the U.S. is actually the 1% rich in the rest of the world. And he says this, that in India, the median income is $608 in total wealth. And that is, that is better than Africa, which is $411 of total wealth. 
I want you to hear this. The poorest in America are wealthy by the world standards. You are considered wealthy if you have a roof over your head, running water in your home. The ability to heat or cool your home is an extreme luxury. Extreme luxury. If you have access to food, clothing, footwear, etc., you are considered wealthy compared to the rest of the world. So all of us would be considered wealthy. And so this would be applicable to all of us. I want you to know the Bible does not discourage the acquiring of wealth. Abraham was wealthy, yet he walked with God. It does not discourage us from having wealth, but discourages wealth having us. Big difference. Job was rich. David, Josiah, Philemon, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia were all rich. The Jews in Canaan owned property and benefited from from the produce of the property. Jesus has several parables uh, that talks about private property and private gain. What the Bible does condemn is acquiring wealth by illegal means for inappropriate purposes. Amos, Isaiah, and Jeremiah thunder their messages about stolen wealth. Wealth can be a spiritual handicap. Material possessions tend to focus one's thoughts and interests on this world. You look at people that have a lot of stuff, and they will claw, and they will, they will climb and, 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 and step on people to keep what they have. Money can lead to idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. The problem is not the currency. It's the heart. It is the heart. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. With that little introduction, okay, let's talk about what James is addressing here, the perils of riches. And in verse 1, we see the warning to the worldly wealthy. Starts out like this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Now, this is prophetic. This is talking about what's going to happen in Jerusalem in 70 AD, just a few years from when this was written. This is prophetic. All the stuff you have is going to be left behind. All the stuff that you have been struggling, you wealthy folks, to have and and to maintain and to get more, it's all going to be left behind. And I want you to note there's a change in who James is addressing here. He has been addressing the brethren up to this point, but now he's addressing those who are just consumed with wealth, those who are really outside the family who have a wrong view of what riches are. So he's addressing the worldly rich. And the rich is this word, it's pulosios, and it means the extremely rich. Now look at again, if you have a, a roof over your head, if you have central air conditioning, if you have a furnace, you are rich compared to the rest of the world. The entire life is, is focused on wealth for the wealthy. Stuff, stuff, and more stuff. Fight and claw. How many times do people look at their bank account, their jewels, their gold, And the focus is my, 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 at the expense of everything else. My, 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 at the expense of anything else. The warning is this. They will weep and howl. And that's an extreme outburst of emotion. Why? Because their doom is certain. Life will change soon for them. They've been focusing on the wrong thing. Wrong focus point. Everything we own, folks, is rotting. I don't know if you realize that. I mean, if you buy a new car, what do you do with your new car? You go to Myers and you park it way off someplace. A year later, you're a little closer to the store. Five years later, you're jamming in any place that you can get in. Why? Because it's wearing down. It's wearing down. New clothes wear down. 
your new home will wear down. And guess what else is wearing down? You are wearing down. We are wearing down. That's the truth of it. Nothing stays new. Everything in this fallen world is perishing. That's the truth. That's the truth. The warning is this. Miseries are coming. Judgment is coming. Your demise is sure. You have the wrong focus. If your wealth is your focus, that's the wrong focus. Riches are fleeting. Proverbs 11.28 says this. He who trusts in riches will fall. Proverbs 23.5. Riches certainly make themselves wings. People here have a 403 or a 401. Just close your eyes. Don't even look at it now because we might be going into a trade war. So don't even look. Pretend it's not there because it is fleeting. It is fleeting. This is a warning to the worldly wealthy. Do not trust in riches. Do not trust in riches. They are fleeting. In verse 2 and 3, we see this. This is a warning against hoarding. Anybody have a problem with that? Hoarders, yes. Verse 2 and 3, your riches are corrupted. Everything Again, everything is winding down. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. You have hoarded into the last days. Remember this. When you hoard and you want more and more and more and more and more, listen to this. You can't take it with you. You realize that. You can't take it with you. Anything you hoard for, for perceived security will eventually rot. Food, clothes, gold, silver, whatever people hoard. Now, this does not mean that we should not be prepared for the unexpected. We are to put things aside. We're to put money aside. We're to put uh, food aside, that sort of thing, to be prepared for the unexpected. Storing up for a rainy day is good, but when the focus is constantly on all the stuff you have, that is the wrong focus. The focus, when it focuses on hoarding for more and more and more, you're off base. Jesus has a parable that he gives to the rich hoarder, known as the rich fool. And it is in Luke chapter 12, verse 16 through 21. Let me just share this with you. Now, Jesus is speaking in verse 15. He says, take heed, beware of covetousness, that desire for more of what other people have. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he goes on to speak the parable. He spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, now look, at he's, he's doing some self-talk. And watch all the eyes in the me's. The eyes in the me's. What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? It's all about me. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my old crummy barns the ones I built two years ago, and build greater, and, and, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I am secure because I have all of my stuff in my barns. And notice what Jesus says. But God said to him, fool. And you know what that fool means? Egotist. You egotist, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This fool had no thought of God. 
and his soul was required of him. We simply do not know what is going to happen in the next moment, the next second, the next minute. Now look at people throughout history have tried to take their wealth with them. You see people buried in, in coffins, and they, they get buried with different treasures and that sort of thing. Well, the, the one that really epitomizes this are the pharaohs. One was called King Tut. Now, I want you to notice, King Tut had, he's going to be on the screen up here, but I, he has three, three things. Now, this is one of the richest guys ever, okay? He has a treasury. This treasury, he's got all this gold in the treasury. He has this beautiful burial chamber for when he comes to life again, as a king again, wherever he's going to be, he came out of this beautiful burial chamber. And notice in the annex, the annex here, this thing right here. Notice the wagon wheels. That must be wealth in that, that, that culture. He's got all kinds. And notice the food stores and those little, little bags, food stores, and these other implements that are, that are there with him. He thinks he's going to be a king in the next world. But I want you to notice what he actually takes with him what he actually takes with him. That's going to be the next one. King Tut's tomb is empty, is empty. What he took into the next world was nothing. Stone cold, nothing. That is what he took. That is what we take when we leave this world. We leave with nothing. We claw and we fight and we struggle to get more and we leave with nothing. 1 Timothy 6, 7 says this, for we brought nothing into this world and we will certainly carry nothing out of it. You can't take the stuff from here to the next world. It doesn't fit. Different world, different values. But the saved here with Christ's righteousness that has been credited to them, oh, they get Jesus' righteousness being an heir going into the next world. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And we have rewards awaiting us. Crowns, it says in Scripture, are awaiting for us. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God will not forget your work and your labor of love. He will not forget what you have done. He is a rewarder, this is in Hebrews 11.6, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, who diligently seek him. Remember, he is no fool to lose what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Folks, it will be worth it all. What we have done for Christ here is what we take into the next world. None of this stuff is going to matter there. Okay? Just so we remember that. Just as riches spoil, so does the spirit of those who hoard. There's a principle here. There's a principle. We see it in verse 3. The self-indulgent life produces bitterness and disappointment. The self-indulgent life, the life that's all about me and myself and I, produces bitterness and disappointment. Verse 3 says, it eats your flesh like fire. Time and disuse turns people's attitudes towards life into bitterness and disappointment. The Christian attitude concerning riches is this. It's okay to have wealth, but hold loosely and give freely. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Remember this. We are stewards. We are caretakers of what God has given us. We don't own anything. He owns everything. We have the responsibility as managers, as stewards, to take care of what he has given us. That's the principle. That's the principle. We are taking care of what the master has given to us. You can't take it 
with you. It's just that simple. Uh, verse 4, warning to the wealthy who exploit. They're exploiting their laborers. This is talking about an employer exploiting their employees. Watch what he says, verse 4. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the God of armies. Now, God disdains. Listen to this. God disdains those who profit on the backs of others, who cheat their laborers. Hear what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14 and 15. Do not take advantage of a hired worker or an employee who is poor and needy. Whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns, pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Jeremiah puts it this way in Jeremiah 22:13. Woe to him that builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. And then finally, Malachi 3.5, those that oppress the hireling in his wages are under the judgment of God. It is the teaching of the Bible. It is the teaching of the Bible that the Lord of the universe is concerned for the rights of the laboring man. He looks out for the little guy the regular guy. The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of Jehovah Sabaoth. The God of armies will intervene on your behalf, and he will be against you who is trying to exploit the poor. So, verse 5, the perils of riches, the warning to the wealthy who live for the moment. Warning to the wealthy who live for the moment. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. Focus nothing but upon myself and all the stuff I can get. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. The attitude here is eat, drink, and be merry. That's my whole life. It's the eat, drink, and be merry card. It's a picture of the unrestrained self-gratification. Everything about me at all cost. And, and again, you think this is a problem today? It is a problem today. You bet it is the inordinate focus on me, myself, and I, and what I can get out of everything around me. Remember, me, myself, and I are the three stooges of the flesh, of the Larry, Moe, and Curly of the flesh, okay? Recreate at all costs. For the self-indulgent, listen to this, who suffers? Who suffers when somebody is living with someone self-indulgent? It is those that are closest to the person, closest to you. Your life choices have consequences, and people suffer. Could be a husband, could be a wife, could be the kids, friends, church, even God. The Holy Spirit is grieved when he is left out of the equation. When the self-indulgent is just focused on themselves, the people around them suffer. The people around them suffer. Now, luxury and self-indulgence has a way of ruining character. Money is not sinful. Again, money is neutral. But it's the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Might I add this? It is the love of self, the self-behavior, the self-indulgent life that is evil. Thou shalt not covet is the only commandment that deals with the motivation rather than the visible practice. It is a sin of the heart. 
to have more and more and more of what you have. Now, again, Abraham was rich, but maintained his faith and his character. Lot wasn't able to do that. Lot was contaminated by his riches. It ruined his character, and ultimately his life, his wife dies. If your riches increase, set not your heart upon them, Psalm 62.10. Proverbs 22.1, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Isn't that a great proverb? A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver or gold. A good name has extreme value, has extreme value. I want to talk to you about something. We're talking about self-indulgence. We're talking about unrestrained self-life. What do we see in our community here that contributes to this self-indulgent life that is destroying families and ruining character, and it's located on I-94 and 11 Mile? That's what it is. It's called the casino. But notice the casino calls it gaming. Gaming. And they make this an athletic event, a sporting event, to appeal to people. It's a game. It's fun. It's a game. It's, it's, it's a whole picture. It's ruining families and it's ruining character. And I've not really talked about this before, but I thought this would be a good place to get it in. Okay? So, I just want you to remember this. Before you go to the casino, there's nothing in the Scripture that says don't go to the casino. But there's all kinds of things in Scripture that say avoid all kinds of evil, all forms of evil. Remember the weaker brother principle. There's all kinds of things that are applicable to not going. So what I'd like you to do is if you decide to go, first of all, is pray that, that this is where God would want you to go. Is this where you want me to go, Lord? Is this where you want me to spend my money? Just, just do that. And then I want you to realize that if I know you're going, I'm going to pray for you to have an awful time. <laughs> That's how I'm praying for you. And you know what else I'm praying for you? That the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened. That you'll be able to see in the spirit realm what is going on. And when you see all of those old people by the slot machine, and they're in a trance, and they're losing everything. More on that in just a second. I want you to see the demonic hordes that are actually going on and the destruction that that is causing to families. All under the guise of lights, action, camera, roll them. Okay? It's the demonic hordes. Have the courage to see what is going on in the spirit realm, the ramifications of that, and how many people are suffering and hurting and families are destroyed, and walk out of that place. That's what I'm praying for you. It is not innocent fun. It is not recreation. It is not a game. It's destroying families and lives. Now, just a word, a little bit more about this, this, this gaming thing. I did a little research on this, since I've never been to one of these. Well, just for clarification, 15 years ago, Chris and I went to Las Vegas for an anesthesia meeting. We stayed at the Wynn Hotel, and we did have to pass through the casino to get out. That's all we did was pass through the casino to get out. And to this day, I get from Wynn Hotels, come and enjoy another experience. <laughs> yes. The typical casino gambler sits at a computer screen, enters a credit card, and enters a digital environment carefully constructed to keep them playing until their available money has been extracted. The casino is not your friend. 
David Frum says this, small wins are administered at the most psychologically effective intervals. And the math is remorseless. The longer you play, the more you lose. The industry as a whole targets precisely those who can least afford it. It is the, that is the impoverished who want to get rich quick, and the elderly. They actually take buses and take buses from, from, from assisted living places and bring them down. Now, I want you to know this, that the casinos really make their living on the 4% that are addicted to gambling. They make 96% of their business off the 4% that are addicted. The casino is not your friend. The casino is not your friend. Atlantic City in 1977, they started casinos. And it was because it's going to create jobs. And it created lots of jobs. And it destroyed the whole strip, the Atlantic City strip. All the money from the casino went into the casino to support the casino. The modern slot machines are highly addictive. They get into people's heads as well as their wallets. This is interesting. They engineer the psychological experience of being in the zone. I'm in the zone. It's like I'm an athlete, and I'm in the zone. And people seek that feeling of being in the zone more than the money. They are in the zone. This is interesting. A trance-like state that numbs feelings and blots out time and space. For some heavy players, the goal is not winning the money. It's staying in the zone. To maintain this intensely desirable state, players prolong their time on the machine until they run out of money, a phenomenon called playing to extinction. The casino is not your friend. And finally this, in the 1990s, when the casino boom came into effect, in Iowa, four years later, 1994, four years later, this is statistics from 1994, 5% of the state of Iowa were addicted to gambling. That's a huge number of people. 5%, 1994. In Louisiana, it was worse. It was 7%. The casino is not your friend. It is not a game. It is not gaming. It is hurting people. It is hurting families. So, if you're going to the casino, just remember, I'm praying for you. They have an awful time, and that the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened, that you will see what is going on behind you in the spirit realm. With that stated, Chuck Missler has this to say on riches. It's a, it is good to have the things that money can buy, provided you also have the things that money cannot buy. What good is a million-dollar house if there is no home? Or a million-dollar diamond ring if there is no love? He goes on to say, if, are we buying things we don't need? Oh, this is a great line. With money we don't have, to impress people we don't even like. Yeah, great. Principle is this. We keep what we keep, we lose. What we give to God, we keep with interest added. These are wise words from Chuck Missler. I like that. And finally, verse 6. Warning. Do not take advantage of the righteous, you wealthy people. Do not take advantage of the righteous. Verse 6. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Oh, the poor guy does not resist you. Now look at the rich are condemned. They are sentenced. Why? Because they're stealing from another. They're stealing a life from another, stealing their livelihood. Now the rich have already been addressed here in James chapter 2, verse 6, taking people to court. 
They were taking people to court to extort or extract as much as they could out of the poor person. They used that system. But I will tell you today, there are people that are trying to extort from Christians. And it's happening right before your eyes. You think about TV evangelists and how they are appealing to people to give their seed money. And they get the little, little person, little elderly lady or elderly man or some isolated person in a house that can't get out. And they want their last might. And I'll tell you, God is not smiling at this behavior. Because most of those people that you see on television are exceedingly rich into the millions and millions and millions of dollars rich. God is not smiling at that. He is not laughing at ripping off the poor. Now, what are the rich forgetting? What are the rich forgetting? Well, they're forgetting this, that your riches are fleeting. You can't take it with you. You cannot take it with you. And life is a vapor. Here for a moment and gone. If you are storing up everything for here and, and, and not in preparation for there, you are an unwise person. Because this, this epoch of time is fleeting. It is fleeting. It just goes wham, and then your, your time is done. There will be forever. Here is a, a time. And you know what Scripture says? You won't even remember this experience in eternity. You won't even remember this in Isaiah 65 something. It just won't even come to mind. Won't even come to mind. That's how insignificant this is in the eyes of eternity. You don't want to base everything on here. Wealth is fleeting. In less than a decade after James wrote this letter, and, he, and he's talking about all these wealthy people, Jerusalem fell to the Romans and all their accumulated wealth was taken. In just a moment, riches make themselves wings, it says in Proverbs 23.5. Do not put your trust in riches. Put your trust in the living God. Things at last. Finally, application. The peril of riches. Chuck Swindoll says this, God's concern is not with actual wealth, but with our attitude towards wealth. And he's going to Quote 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8 through 10. This says this, if we have food and covering, that's food and shelter, with these we shall be content. How, how difficult is it for people to be content today? We're being fed a constant line that, of discontentment. You're discontent if your car is two years old. You're discontent if you don't have the newest LeBron James tennis shoes. You're discontent if you don't have that. And, they, and the marketing is pushing you into that discontentment. You're, we're buying into the, into the lie. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it, isn't it interesting, longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Do you notice the two contrasting attitudes? God wants us to have an attitude of contentment. Be content with what you have. Not a constant craving for riches or what the media or what marketing tells you you should have. Big difference. He is judging those who long to be rich, who long to be rich. Now, when you're thinking about riches, 
You can be poor from, from the external. But if you have Jesus Christ, you can be rich inside. And conversely, you can be rich on the externals and not have Christ and be poor forever. Now look at this. Now, how does this balance? I get to be rich for 20 or 30 years here. Or I get to be rich forever here. I mean, where is the weight on this thing? I mean, where is the weight? I mean, give me a break. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Not here. Not here. Now, what are our proper priorities concerning wealth? Just think about this. Number one, fix our hope on the Lord. He is our wealth. He's the only thing that will last. All this stuff, entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, this is all wearing down. It's all wearing down. Secondly, being rich in good works. Everything done for man will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Being rich in good works. And then finally, holding loosely to what we have. Folks, it's not ours. We are stewards. We are caretakers. Everything you have is going to go to somebody else. You will not take it with you. That empty room that Pharaoh had, that is what we leave, earthly possession. That is, that is what we leave here with. We want to leave, we leave with Jesus Christ. We're heirs of the king. We are rich beyond comprehension, but it's not with this stuff. This stuff gets to stay here. Hip, hip, hooray. Good. So we're stewards. We're caretakers. We have responsibility, and folks, we will get rewards as managers of what God has given us. Ask yourself this question. What is your strategy for being a more faithful steward with the wealth the Lord has given you? What is your strategy for this? What kind of steward are you? What kind of caretaker are you? Can God really trust you with more? Ask yourself that question. Can God really trust you with more? Remember, God gives to you so that you can give to others. Remember, compared to the world, you're the top 1%. We're the top 1%. It's a matter of the heart, folks. Lay up treasures in heaven. Lay up treasures in heaven. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. That's an imperative. That is a command. Do not do this, Christians. We must not do this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust does destroy. That is the truth. And where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The perils of riches, to whom much is given, much is required. Remember. You can't take it with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you take this word and place it into our hearts. Help us, Lord, to hear from you. Help us to apply what you've given us. Help us not just be hearers, but doers of the word. Lord, you've given each one of us wealth to some extent. Help us to be good managers of what you've given us. Lord, there'll be a day when we give an account of what we've done with the things that you have given us. And may we be found good stewards, faithful stewards, that we've taken care of the things that you have blessed us with. And thank you for the rewards that you have promised to those who are faithful. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.